Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with David Hawkins, Director of Climate Policy at the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. David has decades of experience working on energy and climate policy issues in NGOs and government. And in this episode, he'll walk us through the last 60 years of federal climate policy in the U.S. David will help us understand the scientific, political, and economic drivers that have shaped policy decisions from the 1960s all the way up through today, including a reflection on the Trump years and a look ahead to the next four years under a new administration. Stay with us. All right, David Hawkins from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. You bet. So, David, we're going to talk about the relatively long arc of U.S. climate policy today over the last uh, five or six decades. Uh, But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues. So how did you uh, end up working in this sphere? Well, I'd mention two big episodes. Uh, First, uh, when I was in college, I spent uh, a summer on an ecology field study sampling lakes and ponds in Maine, and that taught me an awful lot about uh, how uh, ecological niches work um, and caused me to marvel at it. Second, in the late 1960s, uh, my wife and I spent two summers alone on a small island in Nova Scotia, and that experience was uh, really eye-opening, I guess ear-opening, and uh, and all of my senses. Just spent the summer every day seeing how the plants, the birds, the light, the weather changed uh, day by day. Uh, with the backdrop of the human world in turmoil over the Vietnam War and the Chicago 1968 convention. And yet uh, nature was functioning, changing, thriving. uh, And um, I took away from that experience uh, how important it was to uh, uh, keep humans from uh, messing up nature already uh, more than we already have done. Yeah, that sounds quite quite lovely, and um, you know, I, I imagine many of us wouldn't mind so much uh, right now going and spending a summer on an island and getting away from the turmoil of the last several weeks. Indeed. Well, we won't dwell on that today, although I, I'm sure we could. Um, but we're going to talk instead about um, the history of climate policy in the U.S. and kind of trying to take the long view uh, on this issue, which you've been thinking about for you know a number of decades. And I want to start off just uh, from the beginning. So scientists have at least hypothesized about the greenhouse gas effect uh, since the late 1800s. But of course, policymakers here in the U.S. and globally have not been focused on it until much more recently. So from your perspective, when does anthropogenic climate change start to really make its way into the minds of U.S. policymakers? Right. Well, Scientists have uh, talked about it and written about it for uh, really a couple of hundred years, uh, as early as the 
end of the 18th century, uh, scientists were speculating about past climates and the role that CO2 might have had uh, in changing climates. Mm. Uh, But in terms of policy, it was the uh, start of the 1960s in the U.S. where the U.S. Weather Bureau uh, put... uh, uh, climate change or at least greenhouse gases into the mix with a research program and a decision was made to fund research, uh, notably the Mauna Loa CO2 monitoring station uh, in Hawaii that was set up by Keeling. So that was the first uh, step and I would call it policy just because some government money had to be spent. Uh, then in 1963, the Senate committee that was drafting what became the Clean Air Act of 1963 wrote a report uh, about air pollution, and it labeled CO2 as an air pollutant that could disrupt the climate. So that's the first uh, congressional recognition that I'm aware of. And next in the 60s, in 1965, President Johnson sent an environmental message to Congress where that report identified CO2 as a pollutant that required attention. Uh, So we have three items right in the 1960s that that put CO2 uh, uh, on the radar screen as a problem. However, there was no follow-up either in the executive or legislative branch from the standpoint of actual policy to cut emissions. Right. That's uh, the, the background here is so interesting. There's so many historical details I would love to dig into, but we're going to sort of fast forward, jump over most of the 1960s and get to the 1970s, which is a period when there was an enormous amount of environmental and energy policymaking um, that occurred in the Congress. Um, to what extent, if any, were you know those major environmental regulations driven by concerns over climate change uh, versus other priorities that uh, policymakers had at the time? Right. Well, uh, yes. Uh, acts like the Clean Air Act, the uh, Federal Water Pollution Control Act, these are major bedrock environmental statutes. Uh, and the Clean Air Act was written broadly enough to cover greenhouse gases. However, it was not a focus of the executive branch programs that were undertaken uh uh, under that act uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and I have a personal connection in the Carter administration uh, because I served at EPA during that time. And during the Carter administration, uh, Congress indeed heard testimony uh, from, uh, from uh, scientists and even from policymakers about uh, the need to pay more attention to uh, carbon dioxide uh, pollution. However, the administration priority was on energy security, and to the newly formed Department of Energy, that meant relying on coal. Uh, So it kind of uh, shifted the focus away from where it should have been, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I have to say I regard it as a personal failure on my part that I didn't push to get greenhouse gas policy on the agenda 
Um, and it wasn't as though I had uh, a debate uh, among myself and my staff about, well, should we do this? Uh, no, let's not. Uh, it just didn't get on my uh, radar screen, which I find in retrospect to be uh, quite astounding. Um, but we were so focused on the problems, which were quite urgent problems, of smog and soot that we didn't look up over the horizon to see uh, that action was needed on climate. So this was a big mistake and one that I uh, learned an important lesson about. Um, you got to address urgent priorities, but you also have to leave some space to consider emerging uh, problems before they become urgent priorities. That's so interesting. And just a quick follow-up to that. I I'm curious if at that time there were organizations or groups uh, who were making the case uh, to put climate change uh, in more of a central role, either directly to, to you and your staff or uh, to those in Congress or maybe elsewhere? Yeah, well, the major actor was uh, my good friend Rafe Pomerantz, who was uh, head of Friends of the Earth, uh, and he was a one-man band on trying to beat the drum about uh, about climate change. Uh, and I'm still uh, sort of mystified about uh, why his voice didn't cause me to uh, pay uh, more attention to it. Uh, but uh, Rafe was out there uh, talking to scientists, trying to get scientists to be less reticent and more definitive about the need for action. Uh, and Gus Speth at the uh, Council of Environmental Quality also uh, uh, in the last week of the Carter administration issued uh, an important report on greenhouse gases and the need for action. Interesting. So uh, maybe relevant to, to that report, at what point in time did we start to see proposals and actions taken either by the executive branch or Congress that really directly targeted climate change uh, as, a, uh, as a focus rather than looking at other issues such as air and water pollution or energy security? Yes, the, the first climate-focused bills were introduced in Congress in 1988. And they were pretty significant bills. They were driven by several things. First, it was a presidential election year. And uh, George H.W. Bush was trying to differentiate himself uh, from President Reagan. Uh, and Michael Dukakis was a, uh, a, a big pro-environmental candidate. So there was a, a focus on environmental policy. Second, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was founded, and that got a lot of attention. Third, Jim Hansen gave uh, prescient and powerful testimony uh, in the summer of 1988 uh, and generated a, a lot of attention. And bills were introduced, and those bills were non-trivial. Uh, some of them called for a 20% reduction in CO2 from 1988 levels by 2005. Just imagine if we had adopted those laws and implemented them. But we didn't. There was no follow-through. Uh, most of those bills didn't even get a hearing in committee. Uh, and uh, then we uh, didn't get taken up by the George H.W. Bush administration, which was more focused on acid rain. Right. 
And you've touched on this a little bit in the answer to the previous question, but can you talk a little bit about some of those early bills and to what extent they had support uh, from both parties? To what extent were they bipartisan uh, or were they divided along some of the party lines that we might expect to see uh, today in the modern era? Yeah, interestingly, the bills that were introduced in 1988 had significant uh, a number of Republican co-sponsors. Uh, and um, in 1989, after the election, uh, the number of Republican co-sponsors on bills introduced in the new Congress dropped off some, but there was still a, a non-trivial number of, uh, of Republican co-sponsors. It was it was a different era, and to examine that further, we really need to skip ahead to uh, 2003. So we really lost uh, almost a decade and a half uh, uh, during uh, the Clinton administration. Uh, the focus was on the international treaties, and the focus in the administration was on voluntary efforts, which was quite unfortunate. We could never quite move the administration to move to mandatory policies. So 2003 came along, um, and uh, the McCain-Lieberman bill was introduced. Uh, and that bill was a, a, a strong bill for its time, and it was actually voted on in, uh, on the Senate floor in October of 2003. The vote was 43 to 55, uh, a, a losing vote. Um, there were six Republican yes votes, uh, four of them from New England, and in addition, Richard Luger from Indiana and John McCain. I would single out the Luger vote as one of the uh, you know most stand-up votes. Here's here's a man from a state that uh, was reliant for coal for electricity for about ninety-six percent of the uh, electricity generated in the state. It was a a coal mining state as well as a coal using state. But he stood up because he recognized this, um, and of course, unfortunately, he was uh, defeated and and is now gone. The other bad news uh, on the bipartisan spectrum is that while we got those six Republican yes votes, we lost ten Democratic votes. Uh, almost all from fossil fuel dependent states, and two other Democrats did not vote. So, uh, you know, in the tally, we were plus up for six Republicans, but minus twelve uh, for the uh, for the uh, the Democrats. Uh, and uh, what you saw there was a a, uh, a political division that was driven more by economics and specific industry lobbying groups. Uh, that's what uh, explained almost all the votes. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? What types of lobbying efforts um, were you know, particularly effective at that time at getting some who might otherwise support climate legislation to, to maybe move away from it? I mean, there's a lot of talk um, in, in various communities about the role that um, that energy companies, oil and gas companies, or uh, electric power utilities have played over the years uh, in making it hard for climate change policies to pass. Can you talk a little about you know their role uh, in either the McCain-Lieberman bill or or others that have come along the way uh, in the early two thousands? Yes, uh, I th I think the the 
the key force uh, was uh, a coalition of interests that centered around cheap fossil fuels. So you had the electric power sector that uh, was heavily dependent on coal, and uh, coal was uh, uh, relatively cheap at the time. Natural gas was quite expensive at the time. Um, and that electric power uh, not only caused the uh, owners of the coal-fired power plants to be a forceful lobby to keep their assets valuable, but it also was heavily supported by industrial uh, power consumers uh, right. who uh, and and states you know actually advertised we you know to attract industry to their states we have cheap power come to Ohio we have cheap power. Um, and then finally, labor, uh, who worked uh, both in the power sector and in the industrial sector, was fearful of losing jobs uh, due to uh, uh, energy cost uh, increases that the uh that the producers of fossil fuels were uh, very persuasive in claiming uh, would uh, threaten their jobs so you you had you had that coalition of power producers fossil fuel producers industrial users and uh, labor employed in industry all of whom uh, uh, thought that doing anything to cut carbon pollution would uh, uh, mess up their prospects Right. Really interesting. And it's just worth noting uh, for any of our listeners who don't have kind of much of a, a, a sense about the evolution of technologies over time is that when we're thinking about the 90s and the early 2000s in the power sector, you know, coal and natural gas, as well as nuclear and hydropower are really the kind of driving sources of electricity. It's not like today where wind and solar and energy storage are competitive back then. Uh, wind and solar were really not uh, competitive resources. Right. And so when we start to move forward in time, um, as climate change becomes more and more polarized, when do you sort of see that, uh, that change hardening, uh, where Republicans are becoming increasingly more skeptical of taking action to reduce climate change? And you know, to what do you attribute uh, those changes? Yeah, I would say that the watershed event was the Republican Party's reaction to the election of uh, President Obama. And it didn't have anything to do with Obama, uh, except that uh, the uh, Obama was uh, a real threat to actually make change happen. And um, the the change from the previous opposition is that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, most of the votes against doing something on climate change were driven by regional energy economics. Uh, in 2009, what emerged was opposition that was driven by ideology. And that ideology, in turn, in my view, was driven by political survival. Uh, the opposition to climate change, the opposition to health care policy, they got organized uh, to create a real threat to the political survival of uh, Republican members of, of Congress uh, by being primaried. 
Um, and uh, Supreme Court rulings on campaign finance made it possible for the money uh, to be uh, mobilized to create and, uh, those threats and not make them just speculative threats, but make them huge threats. Uh, and money became a weapon to be used against politicians uh, as much as it was uh, a, a uh uh, a tool to support politicians. Money could be thrown at politicians in a primary and knock them out. Uh, and that caused this um, real lockstep adherence to uh, opposition uh, to uh, policy action that doomed the Waxman-Markey bill in uh, in the Senate um, and has uh, prevented any action since. And the last thing I would say about this is that uh, while uh, this divide is often uh, expressed as skepticism in the Republican Party, it's really not about skepticism. Skepticism is a talking point to justify the behavior of the politicians that are opposing these policies. The real motivation for their behavior is money and the fear that that money will be used against them. And there needs to be a counter to that. And until there is, uh, we're just going to have a hard time. Yeah. And the example of this that comes to mind for me, and, and I imagine for some of our listeners, is um, a representative from South Carolina named Bob Iglis, uh, who I believe voted in favor of Waxman-Markey, or at least expressed support uh, for uh, climate policy, but was you know quickly primaried and ended up losing his seat. That's right. Um, yeah, we actually uh, the Waxman-Markey bill in the House uh, got more Republican votes than uh, the health care legislation. The health care legislation got one Republican vote. The Waxman-Markey bill got eight Republican votes. And yes, uh, those those members, uh, as well as a number of Democratic members from uh, uh, coal states, were targeted in the 2010 election. And uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, that's when the Tea Party caucus uh, was formed as a result of the 2010 election. And it, and it, it instilled this fear that I've been uh, uh, talking about. Yeah. Well, that brings us uh, into the you know first decade of the 2000s and the 2010s. Now we're sitting here in 2021. We're recording this today on January 11th um, and it's been a it's been a very difficult week for the country. It's been a bad week I would say for the country and for democracy. Um, but we are here now and uh, when we think about the legacy of uh, the Trump administration, you know, we're going to think about a lot of things, including the events of the last week. But when we think about climate policy and the long arc of climate policy in the U.S., what are some of the lasting impressions, if any, uh, that you think the Trump presidency will have made when we look back on it several decades from now? Well, I, I think it can actually be quantified in uh, tons of uh, global warming pollution and, and billions of tons uh, the the world is putting out in round numbers 40 billion tons of uh, greenhouse gases uh, each and every year 
And I think Trump's legacy is uh, to have stalled for the four years of his presidency, but also for another five or six years following a reduction that could have occurred if uh, if a progressive uh, climate uh, protective president had uh, been in office. So I think a round number to think about is that uh, there's probably going to be 100 billion tons of greenhouse pollution in the atmosphere that could have been taken out of the atmosphere during this decade of uh, Trump plus five or six years. Uh, that's 100 billion tons out of a budget of uh, perhaps 500 billion tons. Uh, so this is a lot of suffering, and that that carbon pollution is going to be in the air for centuries. We may be able to remove some of the carbon pollution that's in the air through carbon dioxide removal, but we're not going to remove all of it. So there is that lasting increment. Uh, that's a real legacy, and it's going to it's going to be documented as the science progresses in more deaths, in more starvation, in disrupted ecosystems. Uh, so it, it is a it is a marker that uh, is large and very harmful. Yeah, that's a solemn but um, but important point uh, to remember. And um, and it yeah, it's pretty hard, especially this week um, with everything that's been going on. Hopefully, by the time folks listen to this, um, the news in the U.S. and the state of our Union will be a little brighter. Um, so, David, now I'd like to ask you the last question before we go to our top of the stack uh, segment, which is um, touching on the hope that I just mentioned. Um, how hopeful are you about climate action under the incoming Biden administration and the new Congress, which we learned recently will have a Democratic majority in the House and will be divided 50-50 in the Senate with the Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, making the deciding vote. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about climate action in the next uh, several years? I'm very hopeful that uh, there will be major climate action uh, during the Biden-Harris administration. Um, it would be great if Congress acts, uh, and it's too soon to tell whether especially the procedures in the Senate will allow a vote on uh, on significant, strong climate legislation. But I think we will see a lot of activity out of the administration uh, using the powers that uh, are in the laws that Congress has already acted. You know, there's this, uh, there's this disparagement of executive branch action as though executive branch action is not built on the foundation of laws enacted by Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, when the executive branch acts, it's acting to uh, pursue the will of Congress. It's a previous Congress, but until uh, Congress undoes the laws that have been acted before, they are perfectly legitimate vehicles for moving forward. And uh, I think that we'll see the next administration do that if this Congress fails to take the needed action. Yeah, that makes sense. And 
those are certainly going to be topics of future podcasts <laughs> in the next uh, couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so we may ask you back uh, to, to talk about some of those and help us put them in context, especially great. with this great historical view that you've brought us today. So David, let's close it out now by asking you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something to our audience that you've read or watched or heard recently uh, that's related to the environment, even if peripherally, uh, that you think is really great uh, and that uh, you'd suggest people check out. And I'll start with a quick recommendation of a book uh, that I'm about halfway through, uh, which is called Coffee Land uh, by an author named Augustine Sedgwick. It's a book about the history of the coffee industry in El Salvador uh, and kind of a little bit about the coffee industry more broadly. I'm interested in coffee because I like coffee and because I have some friends who work in it. Uh, and it's a really interesting look at how El Salvador became very dependent on coffee as an export crop. Uh, and it's also really interesting for those of us who are just kind of interested in global trade uh, in markets. Uh, but how about you, David? What's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? You bet. Well, thanks for the tip on Coffee Land. I'll uh, look for that. The book that I want to recommend very strongly is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, mm. It is by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, I'll spell it K-I-M-M-E-R-E-R. Ms. Kimmerer is a professor uh, at uh, the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She is a plant ecologist, uh, and uh, she is a Native American. And this book is really quite a marvel. I've given it to my three grown children. Uh, the book, uh, the title, Braiding Sweetgrass, well, uh, the, the book itself is a braid. Uh, it, it's made up of three strands of, uh, of knowledge, and those three strands are indigenous knowledge, where she writes very powerfully uh, and empathetically about indigenous knowledge uh, in uh, crop growing, uh, in basket weaving, uh, and in just attention to the landscape. So indigenous knowledge is strand one. Western science is strand two. She is, uh, as I said, Native American, but uh, professionally she is a scientist uh, trained in Western science, and she um, doesn't uh, neglect uh, Western science, uh, even though she respects indigenous knowledge. And the third strand is family and especially motherhood. And her chapters on what it means to be a mother, um, uh, I just found uh, really uh, compelling. Um, and uh, it's a book of essays, but you know, essay is too dry a word to uh, really communicate uh, uh, the uh, pleasure that I got out of this book. Uh, it's, it's a book that's both energizing and uh, comforting. And I'll just tell a, a final little story. I was so moved by the book that uh, I wrote to her and told her that uh, we had a new granddaughter, uh, and I wondered if she would be kind enough to write something in a copy of her book uh, to our new granddaughter 
that um, when our granddaughter is old enough to read, uh, she could look back on and uh, have as a memento, and she did so. Uh, so our little granddaughter has uh, has that book uh, with some words uh, from this uh, remarkable scientist and writer. Wow. That is a great story. And uh, thank you so much for the recommendation, Braiding Sweetgrass. I will definitely check that out. And congratulations on your new granddaughter, David. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, um, once again, uh, we'll say thank you, uh, David Hawkins from the Natural Resources Defense Council for joining us. We'll make sure to have links to both of the books we talked about in our show notes so people can easily click uh, and check them out. Um, and, uh, just once again, want to say thank you and really appreciate you taking the time to help us understand the long arc of climate policy in the U S. Thank you, Daniel. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to resources radio, learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.